Hey, it's Colleen. Welcome back to Inside the Vatican. We are so excited to kick off our new season with a special deep dive episode on the opening of the secret archive of Pope Pius XII. We heard that you'd like more in-depth coverage on a single topic, and so we got to it. Creating this kind of deep dive takes a ton of work and resources, and as I'm sure you'll hear, it really pays off. So if you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting our work at americamedia.org donate. And if you can't do that right now, that's okay. You can help us grow the show by passing this episode along to a friend. Thanks so much for your support of Inside the Vatican. The Rome Roundup is one of the darkest moments of, uh, of the Second World War in Italy. So in October, in fact, October 16th of 1943, the early morning hours, uh, the SS conduct a roundup of Rome's historic and ancient Jewish quarter, which is just literally across the river from St. Peter's. Uh, And in that first roundup, uh, we believe approximately 1,200 Jews were arrested. That included uh, women and children. Uh, And they were held for a time at a uh, a very drab military college there, again, just across the Tiber from St. Peter's. Those 1,200 Jews were within days on trains, and most of them made their way to Auschwitz, where they were gassed within days upon arrival. We believe that approximately 17 of the 1,200 survived to return to Rome after the war. Obviously, this roundup is happening literally under the Pope's window. And so there was a widespread expectation that the Pope do something. And that's the question that dogs Pius XII. It dogs him during the war, and it will dog him for the decades since. Because the question ultimately is, what do you think the Pope What can a pope do and what what should a pope do, especially in a time of crisis? Uh, My name is Robert Ventresca. I'm a professor of history at King's University College at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. My research focuses on uh, the role of the Catholic Church in the uh, Nazi fascist era. Dr. Ventresca is one of the historians who will be working in the Vatican's newly opened archive on Pope Pius XII. Usually, a pope's archive will remain sealed for 75 years after his pontificate ends. But for some cases, there have been exceptions, when those archives contain information that's extremely important to the historical record, like what Pope Pius XII knew about the Holocaust and what he did in response. The Vatican had announced under Pope Benedict that it would open these archives. But as every scholar knows, putting these historic treasure troves in order takes years. In March, the archives finally opened, and in the blink of an eye, were closed again like everything else in the coronavirus shutdown. That brings us to today's story. Now that Italy is reopening, so too are the archives, meaning scholars like Dr. Ventresca can once again take up the search for answers about what Pius knew during the war, what he did in response, and why. I'm Colleen Deli with a special deep dive edition of Inside the Vatican. smoke in the far corner above the tall pipe-like chimney of the Sistine Chapel to proclaim that a new pope has been elected. Now, um, I want to ask you, how would you describe really briefly Pius as as a person, right? What's his character like? You, you've written the book on him, and I'm very curious. Right. <laughs> well, Pius as a person is kind of enigmatic. I've 
heard him described as somewhat reserved, even aloof is a word that's been used to describe him. Um, others, however, described him as very uh, warm, uh, very humane. One of his advisors said that you know he would often remark that it's important for a pope to speak like a pope, which meant, in other words, speak with a language that was elevated and and uh, you know sophisticated and rarefied. There is a great need today of an education of the heart and of the will, as well as, the, as of the mind and of the intellect. You know, he came from a um, what what's been described as kind of a traditional Roman family. Uh, technically, had aristocratic titles, although those were earned in the uh, in the eighteen uh, hundreds uh, for their loyalty to the papal to papal state during the era of Italian unification. So they're not an old noble family, but they are sort of nominally a noble family. So there was a certain uh, reserve and a certain sort of formality to his personality. He was a member of the Pacelli family that had served for generations the Holy See, and they still do. So there are still Pacellis in at the service of the Holy See. That's Dr. Massimo Fagioli. He's an historian and professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. And he, too, has a keen interest in the Pius XII archives. And so he was Roman in the strict sense because he was born in Rome in a tiny square in the center of Rome, just a few blocks from the Vatican. And he is the last pope in some sense because he was um, the last one who was born and was uh, and was educated and was shaped to become pope. His career was very predictable. And he became pope because mostly because of his uh, diplomatic service. So he becomes pope not as a pastor, but as a diplomat. It was an event such as Rome had never before witnessed. Linguist and world traveler, Pius spoke to the troops in English. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here within the very own home of the common father of Christum. Here's Dr. Ventresca again. That's one of the great questions is to what extent does his personality, does his temperament actually influence uh, his judgment and his actions? So I think it's a really important uh, consideration for us uh, as we try to make sense of how he acted or didn't act, uh, especially in the context of World War II and, uh, and the Holocaust. So let's go back to the roundup of Roman Jews that happened outside Pius's window. Pius knew that people looked to the Pope for moral leadership and that if he condemned the Nazis publicly, it could be a serious blow. So why didn't he speak up? Uh, Now there's the controversy. Because what we know is that the Pope, when he learns of this, and when his advisors learn of this roundup, they choose to use private means, diplomatic channels, personal channels, as it were, uh, to urge the Germans to, to stop the roundup. There was not at the time, however, any public condemnation his rationale was always that he was, as he put it, uh, trying to avoid a greater evil. That, in fact, they would unleash an even greater fury and uh, they, they would hasten and accelerate deportations and arrests and killing. Some of the would-be defenders of Pius XII would say, listen, what matters about that private diplomatic intervention in October of 1943 is that it ultimately worked. In other words, the deportations stopped. 
what's not clear to, to, to me, and I think one of the things I'm looking for when these archives, when I finally get access to these archives in the, um, in the coming months, I hope, um, I want to understand what the Pope and his advisors knew when they knew it. We need a better understanding of the rationale behind that stated justification, that stated policy, if you will, of avoiding a greater evil. It's obvious that he wants to explain himself. One of the things to really explain is that he does speak out, if you will, but the language, again, is the language of the diplomat, because that's how he's trained. So he'll say things like, you know, people who are being persecuted for no other reason than their background or their ethnicity. Um, he doesn't name the victims. He doesn't doesn't name the perpetrators. That's what will forever haunt, uh, I think, his his legacy and his memory. And I don't think, by the way, any amount of archival research is going to resolve that because I think it's it will always remain more of an, a moral and an ethical judgment than it is a historical judgment. Because I think on that question, the record is clear. The issue is how do you judge what he did? It's a tough call. On the one hand, as a moral leader, it seems plainly obvious that the Pope should speak out publicly against extreme evil, especially knowing that doing so would weaken support for the Nazis. But Pius is a diplomat. He knows that if he undermines the Nazis' support, they might retaliate by killing even more people. And he would lose those private channels where he was able to make a difference slowing down deportations and executions. So which one is the greater good? The documents in this archive will give a fuller picture of how Pius made that decision. So, I mean, just imagine scholars for decades have been hearing uh, that these archives are uh, are soon to open, soon to open. Every so often we'd get little... Uh, tidbits of information uh, that, you know, the archives were almost ready, almost ready. The Vatican Apostolic Archive is located squarely in Vatican City. It has 52 miles of shelving, surrounded by sacred art and reading rooms. There's an underground bunker that protects the most fragile documents. For a long time, it was called the Secret Archives, which only served to arouse media suspicion and gave fodder to Dan Brown novels. Scholars like Dr. Ventresca and Dr. Fagioli know that a more accurate translation of secret is personal or private archives. And they're not expecting a bombshell revelation with its opening. Most of the documents have been published for decades. But still, there's been a growing sense of intrigue around these archives. So you can imagine how excited we were, you know. People are lining up and you have to register and you, have, you go online and you request a spot and, uh, you know, you get your, your email response saying, yes, OK, we've got you in for I was scheduled to go in June as it happened. And I had colleagues who were going to be there in, in March and in April. There was a lot of excitement. And then, of course, COVID shut down the archives, has shut down much of the rest of the world, of course. My plan is to be there early in, uh, in 2021 if travel allows. So walk me through this. You know, we talked about the secret archives, right? And it, it sounds yeah. really spooky. It sounds like I'm, I'm, I imagine like either like a super slick, like super villain's lair right. or just like a dark basement full of file cabinets that are like cobwebby. Yeah. Um, what is it? What is it actually like? Can you can you describe this for me? 
I don't want to disappoint anyone, but they're actually quite um, ordinary in some respects. <laughs> um, I don't want to say mundane because, you know, you, you find yourself, uh, you know, in Vatican City in uh, very pleasant reading rooms, uh, very large windows. You know, you can, from some views, catch the cupolone, you know, the cupola. So you're walking in, in you know, this very in some senses, very majestic settings. You know, you have to pass the Swiss guards, you need to use passports to get access to the Vatican City and so forth. You're, you know, you're constantly reminded of just how remarkable of a place and a situation you find yourself in as a researcher. Dr. Fagioli agrees. There's a whole library only of indexes. And you usually spend the first few days only browsing the library of indexes. I believe personally that the Vatican archives and the Vatican itself is a very sexy place. <laughs> While the setting is clearly a scholar's paradise, the research is slow and methodical. But then, you know, you, you enter a very conventional um, archive in some senses and you request your documents and you, you wait for them to be retrieved. And then you take them over to a table and you sit there and you sort of start to work your way through these, these primary sources. It's what excites historians because this is what we like to work with, the raw material. Um, and, uh, and then you just begin very, very carefully, very slowly, sort of in a very plodding, careful, meticulous way to make your way through the, through the documents. Um, there's a very nice courtyard, a little bar, cafe, where one takes a break. I mean, it's, and I say there's a serious point I think that has to be made, especially when you're studying a topic like the Holocaust, because you, you, you need to find, I think at times, um, you need to reconnect with, with what's human and you need to reconnect with what's meaningful and with what's beautiful. This is a reality for anyone who spends extended time doing research or working in the Vatican. You find yourself in these places of great beauty and great excitement at the center of the church's leadership. And yet, this is the same place where some of the biggest failures and scandals in the church's history happened. As an American raised on superhero and villain stories, it can be tempting to see the Vatican as either a bastion of saintliness or a nest of scandal. But the truth is in the middle. It's a place where both holiness and sin Beauty and ugliness exist side by side. And that's an important lesson for our view of Pius, too. He wasn't a raging anti-Semite or someone who heroically challenged Hitler. As Dr. Fagioli told me, this was pretty typical for most Catholics during the war. The difference is that for Pius, there's a canonization cause underway. And archives revealing that a pope was no better or no worse than most Catholics, well, that's not really what you'd expect from a saint. Usually, the canonization cause is led by a handful of experts that write an official history of the member of the church. And so, usually, they have access to documents that no one has access to because they're, they're not public yet. But for Pope Pius XII, they will be public. And that, of course, will impact his canonization cause. Whatever the historians that have written or are rewriting the official uh, biography, which is called Positio, they face the threat or the possibility that other historians, other Catholic historians or secular historians, they will find documents they do, that they will not use uh, to make a counter-argument saying, well, actually, 
you say that Popeyes, uh, the 12, in this particular issue, did this, but actually you forgot to say that he actually did also this other thing. The approach that many have to this opening of the archives uh, tends often to look for the smoking gun, so for the piece of evidence that will change completely what we know. This is not going to happen. Why? Because most of the documents have been published already. They have been used already by historians. And we have a fairly complete picture of what Pacelli did and what he failed to do. Those files Dr. Fagilli is talking about are wartime documents that the Vatican released between 1965 and 1981 to counter the widespread perception that Pius failed to stand up to Hitler. It's from those documents that we get a lot of the information that we have now. So what he did, we know, was he instructed in various ways Catholics, especially in Italy and in Rome, to help Jews. What he failed to do or actually what he chose not to do, was to uh, speak in public on the Holocaust. The problem is not only during World War II with the fear of retaliation and so on, but that silence lasted also until his death. So here, what we can expect from the archives is a much higher level of detail and of evidence, but no one should really look for something that changes completely our view of him, either in an exculpatory way or in an accusatory way. Most scholars agree. These archives won't give a lot of new information on how Pius acted or failed to act. But for Dr. Ventresca, there's still this question of rationale. You know, one of the things that's very clear from the Pope and his advisors is that when they receive information, of mass killings of Jews, for example, uh, is they tended to to view that information with uh, with uh, skepticism, and they would often say, "Well, you know, we've got to be very careful because of wartime propaganda. It's not entirely sure whether this is reliable information." There's this consistent pattern of kind of discounting information, and they would say they were doing so because they wanted to be prudent and they wanted to be careful and they wanted to be, you know, skeptical, a healthy dose of skepticism, as it were. I want to know whether there's something else going on there. You know, I, I have a suspicion that they're very maybe willfully uh, downplaying information. And, and if that's the case, and if we can find a pattern where they're choosing to disbelieve information, I mean, that's, that's, that's very significant. That matters a great deal to how I judge as a historian uh, his claims about, you know, needing to avoid a greater evil, right? That, that suggests that there are other assumptions and even maybe prejudices that are at work um, that we need to unpack. So if most of the documents about Pius from World War II have already been released, what's being revealed now? It's possible that there are other pieces that were not, not known back then, or that back then didn't seem relevant, but they do now because we know now much more of the puzzle. I would be more skeptical because you can identify a piece of the puzzle as something that makes sense in an unprecedented way, only if you know that puzzle already quite well. 
Getting to know the puzzle of Pius XII in the Second World War is going to take months, if not years, of long, slow archival work, pouring through the documents and looking for clues about rationale, like Dr. Ventresco wants to do. Both of the scholars I talked to said that there likely isn't anything sensational in these archives. And if something comes out that seems sensational, it may just be someone trying to capitalize on one piece of the puzzle. Uh, I would avoid thinking that somehow there's some kind of smoking gun revelation, you know, that one document that suddenly is going to sort of indict Pius XII or exonerate him, you know. Uh, it, it feels at times like, like, like uh, people are looking for sort of dramatic, shocking revelation discovery. And there's this sensational nature to a lot of the coverage of this question. And I understand that, but it's very harmful, actually, in the long run, because it's, it's not the way historical knowledge works. And, you know, I, I worry, too, that when we rush to judgment, again, I think it just sometimes can poison the well, if you will, of, of, uh, of Catholic-Jewish relations, uh, because I think it, it, it can skew people's perceptions uh, of, uh, of what's happened. And, um, and that those perceptions of the past matter very much in the present. You know? So for, for me as a historian, it's really important that we get the history right. And again, we can argue about, about history and our interpretations, but uh, we've got to be very cautious that we don't let our work get uh, you know, manipulated and politicized and sensationalized. One of the things that the opening of the archives, I think, has prompted me to do is to think about why the archives matter um, and why archives in general matter. I mean, we understand that, again, archives are about power. They help us to understand the way power is constructed, the way power is exercised. But it's also about transparency. It's also about accountability. Uh, to some extent, it's really about reckoning. It's, a, it's accounting for how the most powerful men uh, in the most powerful religious organization on earth uh, responded to, uh, to, again, extreme humanitarian crises. Dr. Robert Ventresca's biography of Pope Pius XII, Soldier of Christ, is available online. And he has a chapter in a forthcoming book called Advancing Holocaust Studies. You can find his work at robertventresca.ca. We were also joined today by Dr. Massimo Fagioli. You can find his columns in La Croix International and Commonweal Magazine. And you can find me on Twitter at Massimo Fagioli with various statements on this church, but most importantly on gelato. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Production assistance from Gabby Guerrero. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I. If you enjoyed this deep dive into Pius XII, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. It really helps us get the word out about the show. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time.
Tired of your kids playing mindless video games? Looking for wholesome content to entertain and nourish their faith? Look no further than Wanderlight, a groundbreaking new Catholic video game from Loyola Press. Wanderlight gives kids a new way to engage with their faith. Kids meet Catholic saints and roleplay discipleship in a quest-filled, adventure-driven pilgrimage. Available online at the Apple Store and on Google Play Store August 3rd. Learn more at wanderlightgame.com.